So as Andrew said, we're beginning a new teaching series today. It is called The Makarioi. And that sounds like it belongs in Star Trek or something else, like some distant planet, some beings that we're not familiar with. But it's actually the plural of Makarios. And you go, yeah. <laughs> and that helps. It's the word, it's the Greek word that we translate blessed. And we're going to use that word deliberately because I think for most of us, the word blessed is kind of contentless, right? When do we say blessed? What do we mean by blessed? Um, you'll find some modern translations that may use the word happy. And happy is also a gutless word, right? It's like, I feel good. I feel happy today, right? So we're, we're going to take a deep dive into what the New Testament means by makarioi or makarios, blessed. And we're going to do that by looking at the, the passage in the Bible in Matthew 5 that we call the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes play out like this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down, and we, I'm just going to pause there. When a Jewish teacher sat down, he was taking the posture of a rabbi. So he was taking a posture of authority. He also went up into the mountain. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and there's some kind of glaring comparisons um, between what happened on the mount in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, and what happens here is Jesus goes onto the mount. Something very important is happening in uh, the course of history as Jesus gives this little talk on the mount. It says, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you read that list of blesseds, of makarioses, what do you feel? Um, if you were standing you know, with the throngs of people, um, gazing at Jesus and listening very carefully to what he said, what would it feel like to hear him say the things that he said? Another version of this story um, is even clearer. It begins by Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. Never mind poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Wouldn't you want to say, like, how? Wouldn't you want to ask, what kind of thing is he saying? Is he being sarcastic? What do you, what do you think? Is he, is he being sarcastic? Is he being inflammatory? Uh, is he using hyper, hyperbole, like exaggerating things? Does he actually mean what he says? What do you think? How does this sit with you? Yeah, it, it's smart just to sit there and stare at me, for sure. <laughs> That's what I would do. You, you almost feel like saying, really? Like, what does this mean? Why did you say this, Jesus? In what way 
are the poor blessed? In what way? And what does blessed mean then? What, happy are the poor? You know, satisfied are the poor? Um, loved by God are the poor? What do you mean? What are the Beatitudes all about? So I'm going to give you a little history of my theology, which I'm pretty sure was the same as Andrew's theology, which was we did not pay any attention to the Sermon on the Mount. It didn't matter. Here's why. Um, it was all about the kingdom that is going to come sometime in the future. Usually the way we schemed it out was that it would be a literal 1,000-year period of the reign of the Lord Jesus on earth. And that dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulational theology still makes sense in many ways. It makes sense of a lot of complicated Old Testament passages where numbers are involved. It makes sense of a 70-week scheme of things and 69 weeks and one week and 1,360 days, and then 1,360 days, and three and a half, and three and a half. All those numbers are accounted for, not by my emerging theology, unfortunately, except they are, I think, in a better way, but they were well accounted for in the scheme of theology that said, the Beatitudes are nice ideas, but they are only going to come true in the millennium that is yet to come, in the future. When Jesus comes, this will be the constitution of his kingdom. So for most of my pastoral ministry, I was pretty much in that school of things that Matthew was kind of hard to understand unless I could account for it by saying it's about the kingdom yet to come and it is the constitution of the kingdom that is yet to come. Neat and tidy, and it meant I did not have to deal with the Beatitudes until my theology began to change. So there's an English theology writer, teacher, Oxford professor, N.T. Wright, and he has brought into the consciousness of evangelicals um, a, be a better understanding of the coming kingdom of God. He begins to talk about the kingdom of God that is coming and already here. And it changes everything. He talks about the fact that we are not interested in getting people away from this earth and taking them to heaven, which is someplace. We're interested in bringing heaven to earth. And that simple little shift is like a wow. What would that mean if we could see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven? We just prayed that. So presumably we believe it, right? Here is a quote that I would like to... Uh, have it dawn on you the way it, it has dawned on me this week. Uh, there's a guy called Scott McKnight, and he has written a whole lot of commentaries, one on Matthew, in which he says this. So just let this kind of sink into your mind for a minute. Too often, the characteristics of the Beatitudes are turned into ideals we must strive to attain. And I would say we might get there if we're not careful. We might, if we begin to embrace them, we might have kind of a pathetic attempt whereby we say, we will strive to attain those beatitudes. They become a checklist. 
But listen what he goes on to say. As ideals, they can become formulae rather than descriptions of the kind of people characteristic of the new age taught by Christ. You get that? They can tend to become formulas that if we can attain these ideals, God will be pleased and we'll be happy. But the, I think the great release of this statement, and this is uh, quoted from Stanley Hauerwas, who's also a renowned theologian. At his father's funeral, he apparently said this. Um, the rest of the quote says, Thus Jesus does not tell us what we should try to be, or that we should try to be poor in spirit or meek or peacemakers. He simply says that many who are called into the kingdom will find themselves so constituted. You get the difference? The whole difference between it being um, something that's going to be incumbent in the future and we just pay attention to now, and the difference between a list of ideals that we should try to attain to an actual description of what people are like who are called to be Christ followers and find themselves these kinds of people. How much work is there for you and for me in what is set up there? None. I love that. I felt like even going into this teaching series, you know, what will we do? How can we encourage people to try to? And wow, no. It is not to encourage anybody to try to be anything. It is to discover who we are and what kind of people we are because of our relationship with Christ. That's a, a big difference between more things we have to learn, more things we have to do. It is simply realizing some things. So I'm looking forward to realizing with you um, what this passage is telling us. So people have looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the Beatitudes, in terms of moral theory or moral or ethical theory. And there is all kinds of work that has been done through many centuries on how to understand um, how it is that you live a moral or an ethical life. I mean, what, what are the parameters of a moral ethical life? And so I'm not going to bore you with who these people are, but generally people will categorize um, moral teaching through the last few millennia um, by calling them one of three. Either it'll be a virtue sort of framework for um, moral and ethical theories. Uh, that would be Aristotle's teaching back, way back, 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 back. Um, then there's one called deontological. It just comes from two Greek words, but that's Immanuel Kant, and it was the categoric imperative, if you remember all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the kind of moral living that imagines what should be and how what should be is um, incumbent upon us. And then more lately, there would be several that are called utilitarian, uh, like John Stuart Mill, who basically are saying, these are the things that work. So we will do what works in terms of what we have agreed is good and moral and ethical and so on. So, so into all of that, we place Jesus and we ask ourselves, what is the Sermon on the Mount? What are the Beatitudes in terms of their moral ethical framework? 
And many people have tried to find Jesus' teaching in one of the three, and in fact have found ways that the teaching of Jesus uh, would be a good fulfillment of the desires of one of these three. But there is more to Jesus that we need to discover, and Scott McKnight identifies Jesus' ethical and moral theory as being from four angles. First is the angle of ethics from above, that the Torah, the law of the Old Testament, um, Jesus drew heavily from the Torah. Um, if you go through much more of Matthew, you will hear Jesus saying things that very definitely are his interpretation of the Torah. You have heard it said, and I say. So one source of the ethics of Jesus is the source from above. The second source would be the ethic from beyond. And again, to the scriptures, we would go to the prophets and realize that the prophets were not speaking down God's word, but they were speaking out um, their realization of the way that Israel did or did not respond to God's word. And the third kind of ethics that um, Jesus was working from is the ethics from below, which would be the simple reality of human wisdom. So in the scriptures, Torah is ethics from above, prophets are ethics from um, beyond, and ethics from below are the wisdom literatures like Ecclesiastes and understanding what kind of literature that, it, that is and how we bring it to bear on our Christian lives. Now here's the thing though that is added to this and this becomes really the crux. Um, Jesus did not only draw from those three angles, he did something else. And it's a clumsy way to say it, but basically it's ethics in the context of messianic kingdom. So Jesus was the Messiah, and what we're claiming here is that what he says in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount was not just the best of three sources of wisdom, it was a wisdom that understood God's future and spoke into the present with God's future fully in mind. So unlike any human philosopher, unlike any Jewish teacher or rabbi, here is one who sat down on a mountain, called down what God said, called forward what the prophets had said, brought forward the wisdom of the ages, and spoke, because after he finished speaking, what did the people say? They were amazed at him because he spoke with authority, not like one of their rabbis. Now, when I read the Beatitudes to you, did you hear authority? No, because you heard it from me. But if you heard it from Jesus, you actually and literally were hearing it from God himself. So God came onto a mountain, sat down, and said, here's what it means to be blessed. Here's what it's like when you live into the truth of my messianic kingdom, which is coming and already here. Now, you can begin to anticipate what the implications of what I'm saying are, right? What are they for tomorrow and for Tuesday and for so on? Um, one commentator says it's, it was ro robustly shaped by a certain knowledge of God's future. Don't you love the word robust? I mean, we've used it in the last few years. You know, we've overused it. A robust conversation, 
Wayne, let's have a robust conversation. Yeah. But it's good here, right? Robustly shaped by certain knowledge of God's future. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor, that was God talking. When Jesus said, blessed are the meek, that was God saying something. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, it was God saying something. And what he was saying was not just, this is kind of a popular psychology view of being happy or being successful. This is really profound. This is what it means to own the coming kingdom of Jesus as ours and to live like it. And we don't have to work at it. It's going to show up. So what do we have to do? There's always something we have to do. And this was in a, what they call a second temple context of Galilean Jewish life, if you're interested. But beyond that, I think there are four things will be good for us to realize. And I'm using the verb realize as distinct from you know, strive to or um, work at. It's just realize. What does it mean to realize something? It's that it just dawns on you, right? I realized. What did you realize? There was something that I got a hold of in my head, maybe in my heart, maybe by what I looked at. I realized. So the first thing that I think we need to realize that it's not earth to heaven. That's not the direction of God's soteriological work or God's salvation work. Um, we really did have a popular Christianity that said, this world does not matter to us. We're going to get out, and we're going to take as many with us as we possibly can, in the good sense, right? So it didn't matter about the environment, about ecology, or even about politics, or anything that's going on, because all that we're here to do is to wait until we get out of here. And I don't know if that sounded appealing to you. It never did to me. This idea that we were going to leave here, the places I liked, and we were going to go someplace, and we're not quite sure where it is, but apparently they don't have real musical instruments. They use harps all the time, and everybody sings. And I can't sing. My voice is too low. I can't reach any of the notes you all sing. So I'm going, yeah, that's it. What about here? Well, here won't matter. Because without saying it, it was God's going to throw this away. And that is something that is offensive to the good God who created a good heaven and earth. He doesn't want to throw it away, nor does he want to throw you away. So I think we need to realize that we're not here to get here to heaven and just have done with that. And think of all the implications that there are around that, that we're not here to get people out of here with us. We're here to be with everyone else who is here, understanding that God loves the world and the world of people. So once I realized that, and once I did realize that, it was an amazing relief to say, you know what? God loves this planet, and he's going to renew it. Um, 
So all the places that I've been, and I love seeing cultures and peoples, everywhere that I've been, I've fallen in love with. Everywhere that I didn't think I would want to go when I went, I wanted to go back because people and culture and languages and habits and gorgeous scenery and people faces. To think that they don't matter is ridiculous, actually. And, and it really gave me a brand new lease on the planet that we live on. Um, why do we care about Milton? Because God does. Because the best version of Milton is what God has in store for the kingdom of Jesus. Right? Second thing that I think we need to realize is that it's heaven to earth. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Andrew says... As in heaven, so in Milton, or in Milton as in heaven. We really mean that. Like we mean whatever we work towards, whatever we augur here in Milton should be with a view to Milton being more like it is in heaven. That, that the better thing that we can imagine that would be a kingdom kind of thing is what we strive for. Um, we want every kind of improvement. We moved here as a church because Milton had a view about being re-energized or revitalized. Our vision was that we should be the spiritual heart of the revitalization of Milton. That's a good, good thing for everyone. We are not going to impose something on people to drag them away from any future of Milton because really what we want is to get them to heaven. No, we want to bring heaven to Milton and have people understand that what has happened here is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. So thirdly, I think we need to realize that the kingdom has come. And I did not realize that. I believed in it, but I believed that we were waiting for it. And that is wrong thinking. The kingdom has come. What happened when Jesus came to earth, when he lived, died, and was raised from the dead? He inaugurated his kingdom. There's something that John the Baptist said and Jesus said, both of them. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or the kingdom of heaven is near. And I used to think that that was a chronological statement. That Jesus was saying, you have to repent because sometime later the kingdom of heaven is going to come. And you need to be repentant to be able to go there. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he meant, and John the Baptist meant, the kingdom of heaven is nearby. And he inaugurated the kingdom. It was like it was nearby in the sense of thin places. If you've ever been to thin places, if you ever go to Ireland, Ireland is full of thin places like the Giant's Causeway and other lovely places where you really do believe that heaven is just there, just over there, right? And that's why I'm glad I'm thinking differently about the world, because I want Ireland to be in my future, right? So, we'll, we'll see. If the kingdom has come, it means everything has changed. Fundamentally, everything changed. The point in history when everything changed was the point of the intersection of heaven with earth by the person of Jesus. He brought his kingdom, 
And what did he call people to do with the stuff that he gave in the sermon? He said, basically, he said, are you going to follow me or not? Not will you believe this, not do you understand this, but I am starting a new thing. Are you going to follow me or not? And I think that's what he asks us every day of, of our discipleship. Are you going to follow me today or not? Are you going to get out of my way today if you need to learn something or not? Because my kingdom has come, and it is growing and becoming. Now, is there opposition to his kingdom? Absolutely. Like, there's a rebellion going on that won't admit that the kingdom has come. But it doesn't matter that they won't admit it. They are conquered and sentenced, the forces of darkness, because Jesus says, change the way you think about everything because my kingdom is nearby. Finally, we just have to realize that we're part of it. And I think that was the, the sort of um, you know, epiphany for me this week was to say it's not how can we understand the Beatitudes and how can we live into them? It was simply to realize we're part of this. Like what the truth is in each of those Beatitude statements, we're part of that. Somehow or other, it is blessed to be poor. And we need to rethink our whole economics, our whole wealth structures around the truth of that statement. I'm not going to take a lot of time today to get into that. I think Andrew should go there next week. And he's always ragging on money anyway. So. <laughs> but really, to realize that we're part of this. Um, religion is not something that is interesting. It's not something that is good. Um, it's, it's the place and the space in our lives where we realize things. And we live in a world where a lot of the people walking by this building think we're completely crazy. Like, they have pretty much sized things up by saying, well, I'm not religious. I guess you are. I don't know what that is or why you are. I'm spiritual. And we tend to say, well, yeah, I'm not religious either, but I'm spiritual. And they go, but what does that mean? Okay, we're not religious. We are spiritual. What does that mean? Um, people think that we're nuts, and yet we firmly believe that we belong to a kingdom that is emerging in the middle of the old kingdom. We firmly believe that we are colonizing earth with heaven. Now, if we told people we're aliens and we're here to bring our civilization and our culture to you, they will lock us up, right? or they will send us to see a counselor. Right. But that's what we believe. And so that gives us the ambivalence that we have talked about every now and then, that we belong here, and yet we know we actually don't. But we do as we belong in the coming kingdom. And the more that we realize that, uh, the more effective our lives will be, the more um, satisfied our lives will be, the more meaningful our lives will be. And we need to learn new and different ways to portray that in a world that has written us off for very good reasons. We have done a lot of stuff that is just bad as the church. Even we used to be 
quite comfortable calling ourselves evangelicals. That now is a political term, and we say it, and it means a whole lot of things we don't want it to mean. So it's a new day, in a sense, but it's a day that began a couple of thousand years ago. And all of the incredible stories that we hear about the growth of the church, one of my great delights has been to be involved in missions in all kinds of countries and to be delighted to see what God has done and the character of people who have sold themselves to the gospel and have said, whatever, wherever, I'm up for it. And they live the most exciting lives of people I've ever met. Missionaries are the most excited people I've ever met because of what they get to do. It's amazing. But it's because they realize that they're part of it. So let's realize together that we're part of it. Let's explore what the Beatitudes mean and how the second part of each Beatitude will be true. Because the promise is that you are blessed if you're poor because the kingdom of God is yours, or yours is the kingdom of heaven. How? What does that mean? And that's the bookend, first beatitude and last beatitude, that says these kinds of people are the people that own the kingdom of heaven. At the very least, Jesus upsets the sociology of the world. He upsets everything that we would say is good. He extols things that we would pretty much say are unfortunate. And Jesus says, no, makarioi. That's who they are. So, do you want to say the word makarioi just so we get used to it? No, put it, emphasize in the second syllable. Makarioi. Say what? Hi. This is a bad idea, okay? <laughs> so, okay. Let, let's pray. Father, I pray that we will be delighted this morning to imagine ourselves um, standing around a, a seated rabbi who is saying things that are outlandish, who speaks like no one we have ever heard before. Excite us, Father, by the very fact that what he says is counterintuitive. It is upside down. Um, excite us as we realize the truth of who he is and what he has said. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.